Before we read God's word, let us pray that God would send us his spirit to help us to hear and understand and apply his word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send us the very same spirit who breathed out this, your word. That your spirit would help us to understand your word, to obey your word, to the glory of your name. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Scripture passage this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 and then verses 7 through 11. Hold on just one second. Hear God's word for us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. As Pastor John mentioned, last week we've reached a good breaking point in our Roman series and have decided to take a little hiatus from that series in order to focus on scripture passages that will help us to meditate on this season of thanksgiving and then beginning next week to meditate on the seasons of Advent and Christmas. This morning, even as we continue to reflect on having an attitude of Gratitude, we're going to consider the specific ways in which a thankful heart 
leads us to give ourselves away to the glory of God. Our passage from 1 Peter is going to help us to think about this by encouraging us to be good stewards. Now, I think it's important for us to have a basic definition of steward or stewardship as we begin this morning. Stewardship is a word that gets used quite a bit in evangelical circles, especially around this time of year. But it unfortunately usually gets relegated to discussions or sermons on church budgets or capital campaigns. Although scripture has no shortage of things to say about money, my hope this morning is that we can take a broader view of stewardship in order to get a fuller understanding of the calling placed on our lives as those who place our faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're going to start with a very simple, common definition of stewardship. So if you were to look up this word in the dictionary, then you would find something like this. The conducting, supervising, or managing of something. In a very basic sense, to be a good steward means managing resources carefully and responsibly. I don't want to say more than that at this point because I want our definition to be filled out by what God is going to say to us through Peter. Before we look at our passage, I think it's also beneficial for us to understand the framework in which Peter speaks to us here. Peter begins his letter to Christians living in exile and suffering persecution with a spirit of joyful thanksgiving, stating, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter then goes on to tell these Christians that they are in Christ, a people bought with the precious blood of Christ, those who once had not received mercy but now have Receive mercy, those who were called out of darkness into his marvelous light and called to live holy lives. This is not unlike the larger framework for the passage that Pastor John preached last week from Colossians. Paul begins Colossians by saying that he prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul goes on to describe what it looks like to be alive in Christ, to live into this new life we have in Christ. John described for us last week the vital role that thankfulness plays into that new life in Christ. So just as Paul did, Peter will likewise fill out the implications of this reality of our new life in Christ with instructions on joyful and obedient submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So this is where we find ourselves this morning. As we look at this passage in 1 Peter 4, obviously Peter gives several exhortations concerning living in the new life granted to us in Christ. But for our purposes this morning, I want to focus in specifically on how this passage, especially verses 10 and 11, provides us insight into our understanding of stewardship. 
there are at least four ways in which this passage can help shape our understanding. So first, Peter sets stewardship in the context of who Jesus Christ is for us, especially the suffering of Christ and its purpose of putting an end to sin. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whomever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Stewardship, as with all of the exhortations Peter gives in chapter 4, is based on a knowledge of Christ. In a very general sense, if we in our newness of life are to follow Christ, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, then we must know who Christ is as our God and King and how he has gone before us in the way of faithful obedience to our Heavenly Father. But what Paul is telling us here is even more specific, though. It isn't simply about following Christ as an example. What Peter is pointing us to is that Christ's suffering has a purpose. Christ suffered in the flesh to put an end to sin. In his crucifixion, Jesus has dealt once and for all with sin. He has suffered the penalty of our sin as a substitutionary atonement for our sin in order that we might be freed from our sin, the power of our sin, restored to relationship with God, and redeemed to live a life that is glorifying to God. The righteous one who was without sin himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And now Peter tells believers to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If we go back to the preceding verses, we see that Peter has been speaking of baptism. Peter is now saying that we who have been claimed by God through the baptism of the Holy Spirit have died to sin with Christ and have been raised to new life and therefore should be taking sin seriously and setting ourselves in opposition to it just as Christ did. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, right? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And Paul continues, we were baptized therefore with him by baptism. We were buried with him therefore by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So said very simply, living in sin is not consistent with a Christian life, since Christ has died to put an end to sin. So in terms of Christian stewardship, it means at the very least that we must be careful not to use the resources entrusted to us in a sinful manner for the purpose of satisfying the desires of the flesh. Rather, Peter says in verse 2, for the will of God. The implications of this truth are significant for our way of life, just as they were for the early Christians. As one commentator puts it, pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained were popular forms of Roman entertainment. The theater with its risque performances, the chariot races, the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. 
Christian lifestyle also condemned the pleasures of an indulgent temper, sex outside marriage, drinking, slandering, lying, covetousness, and theft. These attitudes toward contemporary Roman customs and morals earned Christians the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to the Roman way of life. Now, we know that this statement about Christians being killjoys is untrue, or it should be untrue, right? We have everything to be thankful for and every reason to be filled with the greatest joy since we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ and have received an eternal inheritance in the Lord. This is not even to mention the material resources the Lord has provided us to sustain our daily needs. But even those two were given for our enjoyment. And speaking of contentment and warning about the dangers of wealth, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, everything God gives us, we are given to enjoy. But ultimately, God is our satisfaction. He is our reward. The lesson here is that we are to be very careful how we use these resources. Our ideas about how to truly enjoy the resources given to us by God must be evaluated against what Scripture says about following the way of Christ, who counted it a joy to give himself up and endure the cross for our sake. Christ teaches us that the way to truly find life is to lose it, that it is more blessed to give than receive, that we are not to store up treasures on earth but in heaven. That we are to care for one another by sharing our resources. The enjoyment of our possessions becomes a problem, a sinful problem, when we only think of ourselves in relation to these gifts. This is how we begin to get consumed with our possessions, how our possessions begin to possess us when they no longer serve us, but we serve them. As it's been said, money is a great servant, but a bad master. The same is true with any of our resources. Our time is a great servant, but a bad master. Our talents are great servants, but bad masters, on and on. You get the point. So it might just be that when we stop using our resources for our own ends, that people will take notice because people aren't used to seeing resources used in selfless ways. Peter mentions in verse 4 that people will be surprised by our behavior. They will be surprised when you don't use your time to keep up with all of the right social events or consumed with your own personal leisure or to advance yourself. They'll be surprised when you don't use your money to buy the latest fashions or gadgets. They'll be surprised when you don't use your gifts to bolster your own wealth or your fame. It wasn't normal in the first century, and it isn't normal now to live in this sort of way. Being a good steward might very well require us to live very differently than those around us. But on the other hand, it could be that we have been managing our resources in a way to fit in. That we have been more concerned with our standing before others than the advancement 
of God's kingdom. Thus, the stewardship of resources should be a constant source of self-reflection in all things. In all things, we should be asking, am I doing this to please myself or am I doing this to please the Lord? The second thing that Peter teaches us here about stewardship is that good stewardship requires us to have the right perspective on our place in history. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now, some people have read this and thought to themselves, poor, silly Peter. He thought that the end of the world was about to happen. Bless his heart. And they've missed Peter's point entirely. The eminence of the end is not about its chronological nearness, but about the point at which we are in God's redemptive history. It's not about its chronological nearness, but the point at which we are in God's redemptive history. That is to say that since the kingdom of God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ, the only event remaining before the end or the goal of all History is Christ coming again. Regardless of whether that day is tomorrow or a thousand years or ten thousand years from now, we stand on the edge, on the precipice of eternity. It is, as Peter says, at hand. And since we know neither the day nor the hour when Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, we must live accordingly. We must live with a sense of urgency, a sense of watchfulness, a sense of preparedness, lest Christ come again and find us slumbering. Next week, we begin the season of Advent. Traditionally, the first week of Advent is dedicated to meditating on the return of Christ, since Advent is not merely about celebrating the incarnation of Christ, the drawing near of God to us in the flesh in Jesus Christ. But it is also meant to serve as a reminder that we are awaiting Christ coming again. Hopefully the season of Advent arouses in us the sense that we are to be constantly making room for Christ. That he might find a throne in our hearts prepared for him when he returns. Given the number of references and warnings to the reality of Christ's second coming in the New Testament, we should not need these reminders to shake us from our Lethargy, Jesus' return is compared to a thief who comes in the night, to the arrival of a delayed bridegroom, to a master who returns unexpected. But alas, we are sinful humans. So Peter's statement that the end is at hand is followed by a therefore and a list of imperatives. This is how we are to live in light of Christ's eminent return. So not only are we to arm ourselves with the way of thinking that was in Christ Jesus, being in opposition to sin, but we are also to be mindful of our proximity to the end of history. And this, too, has very real implications for our stewardship. On John Calvin's deathbed, he continued to work. And when it was suggested that he should rest from his work, Calvin responded, What? Would you have the Lord find me idle? Calvin clearly had no idea that our latter days should be spent playing golf and going on cruises. 
Rather, he took seriously the responsibility to use well the resources he had been given by God. He didn't want to miss an opportunity to make the most of the time he had been granted. He didn't want to miss an opportunity to use the talents God had blessed him with to serve God's kingdom. I think he had a sense that we are to number our days aright, that we must make the most of our days, for they are but a breath and then they're gone. But how our few days are spent will echo through eternity. I think he had a very real conviction that there is a time to rest from our labors of serving the kingdom of God, and it is not in this life. The real rest, the real treasures would come not in this life, but in eternity. For those of you who keep up with pop culture this week, David Cassidy died. David was immensely talented. His life was filled with opportunity. But his life, as many of you are aware, was also filled with troubles. It came to an end way too early and in a very sad way. And just shortly after his death, his daughter Katie, who was with him when he died, shared his last words. This is what he said. So much wasted time. This is from a man with dementia. So much wasted time. These are powerful words from a man whose life was cut tragically short. Now, I don't want anyone to misinterpret my point here. Being a good steward of our time is not about filling our lives with busyness, running from this place to the next to appear to be making the most of our time. Busyness is not a Christian virtue. It is a spiritual illness. As one author puts it, a rush from one thing to another because there is no ballast of vocational integrity and no confidence in the primacy of grace. Good stewardship of our time is about using time wisely. And sometimes the best use of our time is to simply wait, to wait before the Lord in silence. Peter says that we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded, which is not only taking us back to chapter 1, verse 13, where Peter states, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's also contrasting the Christian life with the life of the pagan, which is spent in drunkenness and debauchery, satisfying the desires of the flesh in the present moment and giving no concern for reality that is to come. How we use our resources given to us by God will be enormously dependent on whether we are living with an accurate perception of the reality that has been inaugurated with Christ's resurrection or whether we are merely concerned with keeping ourselves intoxicated with the pleasures of this world. The Christian is called to live a disciplined life. We must have self-control in our habits which will certainly affect how we manage our resources. Our habits should direct the use of our resources towards pleasing the Lord rather than ourselves. I think we should take note here that Peter also adds that we should be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. It's kind of hard to be faithful in our prayer life if we're not living with any sense that Christ could return at any moment. If our attitude is that we 
that what we do here on earth is meaningless, if how we use our resources given to us doesn't matter, if we think that we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, then it's very unlikely that we are devoted to building our relationship with the Lord and seeking his will for our life and turning to him to express a need or to find comfort and rest. So perhaps our prayer life is not only a very good indicator of whether we are living with a proper alertness to the reality of the imminent return of Christ, but might also be a very good indicator of how obedient we are in terms of stewardship. The third thing Peter teaches us here, which gives us perspective by which to understand biblical stewardship, is that everything we have, we have received from God's almighty hand. And it is to be used to serve one another. Verses 10 and 11. As each has a gift, each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We might note here that Peter is speaking specifically of spiritual gifts in this context, but this giving of spiritual gifts is rooted in the larger reality that everything we have has come from the Lord and is the Lord's, which we clearly find expressed in Psalm 24. And that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, which we find clearly expressed in James 1. Not only this, but we can also note here that Peter wants to make very clear that these gifts are not only given by God, but exercised in the strength which God grants to each of us. Now, we would be remiss if we weren't attentive to the implications of what Peter has said here. We have said that stewardship is the management of resources, but now we need to further clarify that statement. This is very, very important. Christian stewardship understands that these resources do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord. Our very selves belong to the Lord. This isn't like a secular business owner who sees his business as entirely his own, so mismanagement of business resources can be simply shrugged off. Oh, well, no big deal. Money wasted, time wasted, energy wasted, no big deal. Everything we have, everything we are is the Lord's. We are managing what belongs to God. Therefore, any mismanagement isn't simply wasting your resources It's wasting God's resources. We are told this is the case from the very beginning of history. Genesis 2.15 tells us that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This was a charge given to humankind. Humans are assigned the great task of being God's representatives in his creation to manage and care for what is his. So then management of resources, Christian stewardship is not limited to money as it might be often portrayed. It is everything. It's how we use all of the resources entrusted to us, the most valuable of which very well might not be our money. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis correctly observes, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything 
that was not, in a sense, his own already. And there is a distinction that we should note here about the difference between owning something and simply managing something. Ownership comes with rights. Management comes with responsibility. And this responsibility implies accountability. So what the parable of the talents is about. The talents don't belong. They don't belong to those to whom they have been entrusted. The servants are merely managing the talents. The servants are accountable to the owner, right? He comes back and wants an account of how the talents have been invested. And he has the right to give reward or to exact punishment. This parable, by the way, is not the only parable on stewardship. I challenge you to do some studying. Jesus, as it turns out, is deeply interested in how we use our time, our talent, our gifts, our money, all of the resources given to us by God. Anyhow, it might be very easy for us to begin thinking that the resources that we have belong to us. We work for them. We earn them. And therefore, can be used by us in any way that we deem acceptable. Scripture warns us in numerous places against this sort of thinking, though. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, which I quoted in two previous recent sermons because Paul quotes it in Romans. It states this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So we need to take seriously how we're using these resources that have been entrusted to us. How are we investing that which God has given us? How are you using your time? How are you using your gifts? How are you using your money Because it isn't simply your time, your gifts, your money. Here's a question. God has blessed some of us with children. Our children aren't ours either. How are we investing in them that we might offer them back to the Lord? Peter is not shy here to say that the resources granted to me are not simply for my personal improvement, enrichment, comfort. Rather, these resources are given for the sake of others. How do we exhibit good stewardship of the resources entrusted to us by God? Peter says, by serving one another. Does this really come as any surprise to us? We are to give ourselves away for the sake of one another, just as Christ Jesus has done for us. So this brings me to my fourth and final point, the final lesson that Peter teaches us about stewardship here. The end of verse 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And here is the ultimate test of whether we are using our resources well as good stewards. Does it glorify God or me? Does how I spend my time entrusted to me give glory to God? Or do I spend it in a way that benefits only myself? 
Does how I use the talents entrusted to me simply bring my self-recognition, or is it to make God's name great in all the earth? Does how I spend the money entrusted to me serve me, or does it serve God's kingdom? And we aren't talking about 10% of our resources. We're talking about everything. Peter says that in everything, God may be glorified. Paul says, remember from Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we want to be good stewards, Paul has, Peter has given us some good starting tips. Give yourselves away by loving each other earnestly. Which means to pursue love with a steadfastness even despite hardship. Use your energy to care for one another. Open your homes to one another. Show hospitality to one another. Dearly beloved, in this season of thanksgiving, let us be thankful for all that the Lord has given us and devote ourselves to use it all For his glory. To him be all the praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your grace, we would be able to use our resources wisely in ways that bring you glory and renown, Lord, that people might turn and see our Father in heaven and give you all the praise. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using Heidelberg Catechism's question and responses 27 and 28. Christian, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can